This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of our monthly Radar podcast. I am here today with Julie Venstevos. Hey, Julie. Hey, Stephen. And I'm here with Pascal Coppens. Hello, Pascal. Hi, Stephen. And Peter Hinzen. Hello, Peter. Hello, everyone. Good to be here. Yes, welcome all. Laurence is not here today, and we actually want to thank Laurence because she will not be joining us anymore in future Nextworks shows and podcasts because she's going for a new adventure in her life. She's going to be create content for other beautiful companies. And we just want to thank her because Laurence has been a big contribution in terms of context and content, but also behind the scenes. You guys don't know that, but Laurence has done a tremendous amount of work to prepare these podcasts and to help them promote. So thank you, Laurence. You will be missed. And we're super happy that you joined us for all those episodes. Thank you, Laurence. Thank you. Thanks, Laurence. Just as a starter, guys, has anyone seen the viral customer experience video of the North Face? Have you seen that one? Yes, I did. I have not. No, I haven't either. Uh, for people who haven't seen it, it was this lady who was doing this big hike with a group of people. It was raining like crazy and she had a North Face jacket and she started to complain saying, I'm the only person here who is wet and you promised me that this would be waterproof and now I'm soaking wet. This really sucks. So she puts that on TikTok. It goes a little bit viral. Then the guys from North Face, they see it and they start this huge campaign around it. And basically, they take a helicopter, take a rainproof jacket, fly to her, stop that evening so she can have that waterproof jacket. That one went viral. Millions and millions and millions of people saw it. People were raving about the North Face, how customer-centric they were. And I just wanted to ask you, do you think this is super customer-centric? Or, or what is your opinion if you hear this story? I don't believe it. I don't, I don't know whether it? you guys have uh, been hiking in the mountains, but if you look at the video, I've never looked that good on a mountain <laughs> when hiking. So I really, <laughs> no, I really don't buy this. <laughs> the, the, no. Yeah. Maybe it's a little bit over the top, literally, of the mountain. <laughs> it feels like a PR stunt. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if it can reach people and get the credibility that they're a customer-centric company, maybe that's worth doing. Yeah, I don't know. I have a problem with this. On the one hand, it's brilliant PR. I don't know if it's real or fake, but anyhow, it's it's brilliant PR. The entire world talked about it. Millions of people were seeing it. It was all over the traditional news around the world. So in terms of brand awareness and brand visibility, it's been amazing. But it scares companies. Uh, when I did some keynotes in the past few weeks about customer experience, a lot of people talked to me about this video. And then they were like, yeah, but we cannot do it. This is super expensive. And they have the feeling that helping out this one customer in a spectacular way is what customer centricity is all about. For me, it's the opposite. Uh, you have to do a zillion small things for as many customers as possible. And if you do that, in the long run, that news will travel as well. Maybe it won't be headline news, but it will be sustainable news under the radar. It will be sustainable conversations among people all over your market. And that brings value. You don't need to do the stunts. You don't need to do the spectacular things. Just a consistent customer service. That is what people expect from an organization. And I have nothing against fantastic PR stunts if your customer service is up to speed in, in other channels. Huh? But a lot of companies are now thinking about what kind of PR stunt do we need to pull so that everyone believes that we're customer-centric. And that has it has the opposite effect and it has the wrong kind of conversations in many companies. 
So I was a little bit critical about this one. So I wanted to share this with the world because everyone is so excited, but it starts the wrong conversation. So I hope in 2024, people will have the right conversations about customer experience. What's the thing with those big Christmas movies? It seems that they are so bad. I mean, if you, if you look at others that are coming out right now, like five minute videos, if you've seen the one from Blackstone with Taylor Swift, I like CEO as Taylor Swift. I mean, five minutes, like, does this really do something? Is it really pure branding or uh, what's your take on that? Well, it's all about attention. Huh? It's, it's like with the Super Bowl. You know, a lot of people say it's crazy to pay a fortune for a 30-second commercial in the Super Bowl. I think it's probably a very good investment because the entire world is watching Super Bowl ads. And it's not just during the Super Bowl, it's in traditional media, it's everywhere. So if it is something that catches attention, it's worthwhile. And I imagine if you make a five-minute film and it has Taylor Swift in it, that you can catch people's attention and that it's worth the thing. I really like the one from Coca-Cola. I don't know if you've seen that one as a previous Coca-Cola employee, Julie. You, you should have I seen it. Yet. It's the first uh, year I haven't. <laughs> they have short ones. like they, they have a lot of bumpers. You see it on TV everywhere now where they say, we need more Santa Clauses. Uh, everyone can be a Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. But I've seen the long version that it's also like three, four minutes, but it's like a super feel-good thing. And I think that can work. I think doing something exceptional that is of super high quality, if it catches the attention and people spend three, four, five minutes on a short, very well-made film, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. A lot of it started, um, I mean, really with TikTok being the attention factory in itself. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, this is where people understood that this uh, catching the attention of people for even if it's just a couple of seconds is, is worth a lot more than long stories sometimes and content. So, uh, yeah, it's been around for a little while, but now it's it's the norm. Yeah. Peter, you were about to react to the Nordstrom thing, I think. Uh, North Face, right? Um, North Face, yeah. North yeah, Face, sorry. Yeah, yeah, because I think this idea of one big, big, big thing that you do, as you said, the exceptionals, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, this gets a lot of visibility. But I also, I know you have as well, you work a lot with companies, you work a lot with brands. And sometimes what you see is that because of who you are and what you do and the visibility you have, you might get some special treatment from companies. Mm -hmm. And I think that also is a really dangerous thing because to your point, instead of doing one thing, you know, very visibly for one customer, try and do good for as many people as possible is probably a better approach. And I take the example of utility companies, telecom companies, for example. It, it, there are so many people who are furious with, you know, trying to reach their telco if they want to have something done, if they want to have something changed. But if you ha have an influencer status or a celebrity status, there's always this VIP service. There's this special service that, you know, For you, we're going to get things done very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And I think that is bad as well, because I think it almost gives this idea that you have first-class citizens and then second-class citizens. I really believe that customers have to really focus on bringing everybody on board and improving what they do to the world. And I think this is something where, you know, that video for me is an example of that. I think it's really bad to do that. So, you know, it's not just about the expense of flying a helicopter. And I really believe it's a complete fake. You know, if, if, I, I just quickly watched it, but I, I cannot mm. believe that this is absolutely real. I think it's a brilliant PR stunt, but I think it really gives the wrong message. I think that mainstreaming is much more important. 
I agree. As long as you give special treatments to your friends or family or famous people, it means that your average quality is not high enough. Huh? You, you, they should be satisfied with the normal service that everyone gets. That means that it's an excellent way of treating people. I fully agree on that one. Because if I would have a North Face jacket, and I, I don't think I do, <laughs> I'd feel like, why don't they send a helicopter to me? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I'd feel terrible about it. Yeah, yeah. I saw another example. Oh, I forgot the name of that brand. It was a few months ago. I showed it in our masterclass, Peter. The example of this company that makes cups where you can keep water in and it stays cold or it stays warm like a thermos bottle. And there was this one lady, her car got on fire. And she had one of those bottles yeah, in it right. with a Coke yeah. with eyes and so. And she made a video, just an authentic video. She said, oh my God, my car really burnt down. And she took the bottle and the ice was still in it after the car burnt down. She yeah, said, yeah, this yeah. is actually the evidence that this is a I believe that bottle. video. I believe that I, video. I believe yeah. that video as well. And then you saw a video from the CEO who said, we're really shocked with what happened, but thank you for sharing that. We're not just going to send you a few bottles. Uh, we're going to buy you a new car. And he also said this is the first time and probably the last time that we do it. But the fact that you made this video for us and that you're such a fan and this happened, we need to do something back in return. That one is really smart to do. Maybe the North Face thing was as a consequence of that. That's oh, we need a bigger stunt. I don't know. But that one was real and authentic. And that was a very powerful message. So you have to judge upon the moment what is cool to do. And it's always cool to do something exceptional once if there's a good reason behind it. But I fully agree that your average quality is just, a, that's the benchmark and that will bring the success or the failure in the long run. Yeah. I also believe that flying a helicopter up to a mountain to deliver a jacket <laughs> is in these you know, environmentally conscious <laughs> times, not a very, very good, good publicity <laughs> no. stunt either. Yeah. No, I mean, that's true. That's true. Hey, uh, Pascal, let's move to another customer experience. One of the hottest topics right now in the Chinese world is the growth of Timu. Do I pronounce it right, Timu? Well, Timu is not a Chinese <laughs> word. So it's actually, it means team up, price down. And so this is an English word, Timu. I think most of us know it. Uh, a lot of us have been playing with this. Our children yeah. are buying all kinds of junk on that platform is sometimes my yes. feeling. Is it more than just a platform that sells really cheap things to the Western world? Or, or what's the story? Well, the story has started again with a, a one-off at the Super Bowl, which you mentioned before. Shop like a billionaire, it was called. And uh, they spent, I think, about $13 million on that ad. And this went uh, really viral and people really understood that if you buy on Timu, you can actually um, buy anything you want at really, really bargain prices. And so Timu launched about a little bit over a year ago in September 2022 in the US. The mother company is actually a Chinese company and um, the holding is in the US, PDD holding. And in China, it's called Pindodo. So the Pindodo is the, the, the company that started in 2015. And uh, Timu is the international version, just like TikTok is the international version of the Douyin in China. And so they started uh, about a year ago, and in nine months' time, they sold about $3 billion in the first nine months of goods. But this is nothing. I mean, this just started. In May 2023, I, I don't know if you remember, I think it was about a year ago, we were talking about Xi'an, yep. how they were going to take over the world. And, well, actually, May 2023, Timu uh, surpassed Xi'an times two in sales. But they're also broader, right? Xi'an is, is really fashion, fashion only, right? Xi'an is fashion. Yeah. Just a question. Did you buy on Timo already? No. 
Any of you? No. 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 Ah. Okay. I have. You have? What, what did you buy or what was your experience, Peter? I was just curious because I remember it was a few months ago, Timo was the most downloaded app in the US. Yes. Yes. And that's when I said, okay, I want to try this. So I put it on my phone and then immediately I found some things that were truly, really, really cool. It, there were little plastic pockets where you could store documents and you could stack them like books. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. So I, I bought like, <laughs> and they were so ridiculously cheap. So I bought like uh, 20 of A4 and, and 30 of A5. And, and, and they arrived, I think, within a week. Yes, mm -hmm. that's normal. And I think because they were very fragile plastic, you know, just little things, I think about 20% of them were broken. Mm. So they arrived <laughs> broken. Good thing that you ordered so many. That <laughs> well, I mean, but that was the point. They were so incredibly cheap that I didn't even care. I, I didn't even yeah. care to complain to say, oh, you know, my, my stuff is broken. I thought, bah, you know, it's so cheap, you know. So I felt it really is. bad afterwards from an environmental point of view because flying all that plastic from China, 20% broken that you throw in the bin here to, you know, go to some landfill here. But the product is something that I have never seen in the store here and I thought was really cool. So I honestly thought if they would make this, you know, just a little bit better, mm -hmm. I would buy a lot more. But since I've bought that one thing on Timu, I, there is not a day that doesn't go by that I'm not <laughs> flooded with, oh, Peter, we yeah. have a special deal. And Peter, you, <laughs> we want you back. And it, I mean, this is... Yeah. It's, cr it's really Ooh, aggressive. my God, it's, uh, it's yeah. hyper aggressive. It's very interesting, yeah. yeah. And so, so Tim, I mean, the reason that you bought this product and you liked it is because there's a few things that Timu does, which is really interesting. I mean, the first thing is they sell products that are not found anywhere else. That is their, their strategy. So the factories, and just so we, you know, they have more than 10 million factories that Pingdodo in China has uh, contracted. How many factories so is, are there in China? <laughs> <laughs> well, a little bit more, uh, but uh, but the, it's it's in pretty much every factory building anything is connected with Timu. That doesn't mean they're all on the platform because there's a very strict system to get on the platform. So they don't sell anything that is found anywhere else except electronics. That's the only only difference. And there's also no counterfeits. And this is really interesting. How can it be that there's no counterfeits? Any idea? No. It's because there's no brands. That's you true. You can't yeah, counterfeit when you don't yeah, have a brand. Yeah, uh -huh. So everything is original equipment manufactured. That means that the factories have become brands. Mm. These factories are selling under their own brands. And this is the whole strategy. Shein had the same, but Shein made their own brand. And so they were selling under their brand. It's not the same with Timu. So you can buy anything. And it shows also the creativity of some of these Chinese building the most practical things in life that you really need. They also don't sell any Shein products. So that's the other thing that they don't. So they don't want to compete with Shein on that side. But it's quite interesting how they move from zero to now being in 40 countries in just one year time, one year and two months time. It's, it's going like crazy. And the whole idea of Timu, and I think it's interesting to, or important to understand their model. Um, you probably heard about this, uh, Stephen, it's the Costco plus Disney model. Mm -hmm. So basically on the Costco side, uh, this is cheap. cheap. 
And then what Peter was talking about, this is the Disney model, this is the hyper-aggressive and entertaining and engaging part on the front-end side, on the app side. I don't like you using the word aggressive and Disney in the same sentence, Pascal. No, I know. <laughs> well, it's <laughs> it's at least it's um, it's entertaining. Let's yeah, that's, 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 a, better that's a better word. That's a better choice of words, yeah. Even the combination Costco and Disney is an interesting one. <laughs> Costco and Disney is painful. It's, it's painful. painful. Yeah, yeah. yeah but okay. But, but this is the model that works in China. And, and this is the model that is going global. And so what they do is on the back end, they really squeeze the suppliers. And it sounds bad to squeeze the suppliers. But the whole idea of that over time, and this is what we've seen with Pindodoo, the Chinese version, is that the quality improves. So it's not just about getting better prices. It's also about getting better factories that can produce better quality at the best prices. And so the system of Timu is a system where it's a bidding system. So if there's a new product like the product that Peter bought, there's probably 20 or 30 factories that did a bid on, I'm going to supply this. And the one with the best quality price ratio is the one that actually can supply it. And they do that over and over again, which means that over time, it improves in quality, it improves in price. And this is also a C2M model, so consumer to manufacturing. So the way that they lower this price is not just by having cheap Chinese factories with manual labor. I mean, they're pretty much gone in China. It's really automated factories, very big investment. But what they do is they sell directly to the consumer. God, I'd, I'd love to see the back end of a platform <laughs> like that, right? I mean, Jesus. Maybe we should go in April in China and go and see it. It's, um, Where are they based, Timu? Where's their headquarters? Pingdodo is in Beijing. But Timu is, is in New York. They're in, they're in everywhere. So it's, uh, the headquarters, I think, is in New York, or it's at least in the U.S. Do you have any idea on the consumer behavior on the platform? Because I, I just looked again while you were talking, and, and a, a bunch of the things they sell on the homepage cost less than one euro. Yep. If everyone buys one thing of half a euro and then gets it shipped, I don't always understand how a model like that works. Or do people just order a bunch of things so that the average ticket size is 30 euros? What, what do, how do people behave on that platform? Do you know? Well, Pingdodo is selling with a loss. And so they're paying for you to buy these things. So Timu probably paid for your products, Peter, the difference between the factory price. And, and they do that for a number of years. And then at one point, they get so much volume, and that's where the, your point comes to, is that they can actually keep that price and not have to pay extra because the volume is so high. But this is what they did in China. It took them six years to get to profitability in China, from 2015 to 2021. Today, they're profitable. They have made about $10 billion uh, last year in revenue. And so about half of that is now used in transactions and the other half is advertisement. And so they're profitable, but it takes five, six years of pumping money into the market. And this is what they're doing. And it's quite interesting, this C2M model, because what I was saying is that they eliminate the, all the intermediaries. So all the distributors, the logistics, everything between the factory and the end user is completely gone, which means the price can go down because it's, it's only Timu or Pingdodo in China that is, is involved. And they call that a fully managed marketplace. And this is an interesting concept because it's getting copied in China by Alibaba. It's getting copied by TikTok, so Douyin in China. So everybody's starting to copy this fully managed marketplace, which means factories become brands. They give the product to Timu, and Timu takes care of everything. Basically, there's nothing that the factory needs to do anymore. And that's why the price 
is so low. Do you have any idea how much a factory can earn, so the profit margin, for a product that they sell? <laughs> Let's say um, a product of 10 or 20 euros. What is the profit margins that a factory can get in China? I suspect it's going to be really, really low. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Less than 5%, I would say. It's one UN, yeah. which is like less than two euro cents. Oof. So two euro cents is like oh. the profit they can make <laughs> per product. And Pindodo itself, or Timu, makes about 0.5, 0.6% on every sale. That is not public, but this is the price in China. I don't know about Timu in, in the rest of the world. It's interesting. You, you almost have like the ultimate capitalist oh, yes, testing yes. environment in, in China. China. <laughs> it is ultimate capitalist. I mean, it's, it's yes. a free market economy to the extreme yep. where, you know, price and demand curves yep. are just going you know, to, to their limit, yep. right? Yep. So it's the ultimate capitalist testing ground. <laughs> Very much. And it goes even further because there's a legal aspect to that as well, which is part of the capitalist system or concept as well is if the factories deliver late, they get fined for it. Oh. So they're actually not making money, they're losing money if there's one day delay in the products that they give. Wow. So this is squeezing them out. Of course, we're going to get a lot of backlash from the Western media in the future saying this is not okay and yeah. so on. But in China, after five, six years, what you've seen is that the result is that these factories are the most efficient factories run, some of them. You have to. Very high quality. And it's the same model as with Xi'an, where anything that happens on the app, so when Peter buys something, well, that data goes directly to the factory floor, okay. that, and he knows, or she knows, the person that is running that factory, oh, I need to make a thousand more because there's a thousand more demand. And so by the time that actually Peter has clicked on that button on Timu, they've already put it in the system to build for the next hundred. And that's how they get it so right. fast. Pascal, I remember that Chain has this, this word of mouth uh, system. Mm -hmm. uh, when you share a review, uh, you get points. And now with the points, yep. the, 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 the fashion is so cheap that you can get some free t-shirts or mm -hmm. free dresses. Is Timo having the same thing where they really use this word of mouth engine behind it? Oh, very much. But they do two things very well. And in China, they do a third thing. But the thing they do very well is they work with influencers, but it's key opinion consumers. So it's not large influencers with millions of followers. It's small buyers, meaning people that just buy a few products, like just what Peter did. I mean, he promoted it uh, without knowing. <laughs> very curious now. And so <laughs> this, he is a, an influencer on Timu right now. And so this is the kind of the concept. And then what Timu does is they reward Peter for example, for doing this, and they will give him some more of the things that he bought or some other things that he wants to buy. So that means that the full Christmas holidays, we will be having ads, all of us. <laughs> because Probably, yeah. Thanks, Peter. Thanks. And we will, we will tag them in our social media posts that we talked about it, and then it's completely a disaster for us. But it, it's interesting, Pascal. I mean, th this system basically goes against everything that the world is promoting these days about sustainability, about creating happy places to work, making sure that everyone can have their part of the pie. And, and this is going against everything that is being talked about, but it, it shows real human behavior that actually, yeah, if you can get some really nice gadgets and some cool stuff at a very cheap price, it feels like we just drop all those ideas and intentions behind us and we just start to, to buy things that are really cheap, basically. Yeah? And of course, companies like Xi'an and now Timu are taking advantage of inflation, taking advantage of people that want to 
have an idea of value when they buy things. So price versus value. And so, yeah, it's the sign of the times. Yeah. I mean, people are more conscious. And, and in China as well, with the economic crisis that is happening there, people are buying. I mean, Pinduoduo went crazy in China the last year. They had a 94% growth year on year just last year. And while Alibaba actually only had like 9% because they're selling too expensive stuff on Alibaba, imagine. Yeah. Or JD.com, which is the electronic store, the Amazon of China is only 1.7% growth yeah. because that's way too expensive. Yeah. So yeah, it really goes into that direction. Like in Belgium and, and Holland, we have this retailer, the Action. This is yes. like the action on speed, <laughs> what they yeah, have. It is, it is. I mean, action is expensive compared to, yeah. <laughs> to Timu, but, but still, I mean, this is where I think it will really start going global because we in Belgium, for example, are still accustomed to go to action store and buy cheap if we want to just buy stuff that we need. It's about practical stuff. But more and more people are buying online because it's just so efficient. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I wanted to mention besides the influencers is also the people, so the buyers, anyone on the platform is constantly getting bombarded with credits. It means that if you refer to friends to, that, to log on to Timo, so Julie and, and Stephen, when you are now a new member of Timu, <laughs> then I will get credits or Peter will get credits, depending on who's the first to convince you. And with that, we can buy products. And so when I bought on Timu just uh, yesterday, once again, to, to, to try it, immediately after I bought it, it was like, oh, you can spin a wheel. It's a game. <laughs> and if you, if you spin it, you can get 150 euros for free. So, of course, I do that just to, to, to figure out what, what to do. And so you spin that wheel. I got 150 euros. And then it says, okay, now you have to buy products to get this 150 euros. So if you buy 20 euros, you get 10 euros. If you get 40 euros, you get 20 euros and so on. So you're tempted to buy even more. But at the same time, I got 150 euros discounts on products that are already, I mean, so cheap. And so this is the whole concept. So it's a lot about gamification. Mm -hmm. And I think the gamification part only we're scratching really the surface in the West compared to what China's doing. In China, you can basically just live on Timu by playing <laughs> games. Mm -hmm. And so this is the whole concept. But what I wanted to talk about a little bit was also about um, the fact that, uh, as I said, they beat uh, Alibaba in growth this year, but also for the very first time in transaction volume. Wow. So Timu is selling more than Alibaba this year. Wow. And this is, I mean, and that's the third quarter of this year. I mean, this is major. I mean, we're talking about uh, a trillion US dollars over a year time in gross merchandising value. So in total product value that they sell through the platform. This is about what Alibaba does. This is about what Timo does. It's also what Amazon does. Of course, Amazon model is a little bit different, different because they buy in and so on. But it's one trillion US dollars. That's like a thousand times more than Bull.com in Belgium yeah. and Netherlands. And they did that in just seven, eight years' time. And with such cheap, I mean, cheap, cheap individual things, things, right? So the Imagine the amount of huge. products that they ship. Most of it is in China, of course, eh? because they've been doing it for a long time in China. Uh, so this is a global volume. But it's crazy because JP Morgan expects them to double that next year. <laughs> so <laughs> this is putting them in a different league. Today, they're the 56th most valued company in the world. Alibaba is 59. And that would put them within the first 30 or first 25 next year. So this is a company going to 
almost beat Tesla if they continue like that in a couple of years from now. And this in just one year time right now. And if you look at the whole idea is that, and this is what I think is interesting also for the listeners, is that Timo is really going global and is changing the whole concept of e-commerce. And I think one of the things is that the problem that China has now, and that's not what has been told very often, is, is this, there's a saturation in e-commerce. Mm -hmm. Everybody in China buys online and mobile payment is just, it's cashless society. And so what that means is that they're having more and more problems to sell more into the Chinese market because it's getting saturated. Too many players, too many platforms and so on. So they're going global. And right now, the customer acquisition cost of a customer in China is about 70 US dollars already per customer. Wow, that's a lot. So it's becoming too high. Yeah. So what did they figure out? TikTok also, their shop, TikTok has a shop. You look at Alibaba, of course, with AliExpress. You look at JD.com, the Amazon of China, or you look at uh, now Timu. They're going to go for the European, the American market because that's where people still have a potential to buy more and especially cheaper products from China. Yep. And combine that with the fact that the Chinese customers are really pushing for higher quality and these factories are becoming better and better in quality. They're reaching our shores in Europe, in America, with products that just others cannot compete with, specifically with the C2M model. But it's mostly interesting to see that Alibaba, TikTok, uh, Shein, all of these are copying the Timu model of taking care of everything in the logistics, in the customs, in the customer service, in the marketing. And that is a different, a new model, which is, is, is really about, you should sell to us. We're going to make sure that the customer gets the best price. Mm -hmm. We're going to make sure that the customer gets the best service. We're going to make sure that the customer gets the best quality. Now, this is going to take time. And the new news from last week of Timu is that they're also now starting to ship by sea mm -hmm. because before everything was air freight, so with, with air. And, and even with flights, I mean, they can do it at ridiculous prices. Do you have any idea how much it costs to ship a product from Guangzhou, where most of the factories are, to, for example, Lurk in Brussels or to Washington no. per product up to the consumer or up to the warehouse in the country of destination? No, seeing that 20% of my stuff was broken, they probably throw it around a lot. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, they probably don't use the best quality logistic services in the world. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, that, that's maybe true. But, uh, but it's, it's one euro per product. Uh, it's incredible. I mean, we sell a lot of books through my own e-commerce shop. If my wife will hear this, she will go nuts. Huh? Just sending a book to yeah. Holland from Belgium is almost 12 euros that you have to pay. It's almost the same as the product itself. So it's insane, <laughs> insane how they can do that. It's one euro per product. And that goes all the way from the factory to the warehouse in, for example, Liège in Belgium for Europe. And then from that warehouse to your home is five euros. <laughs> Yeah, 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 that's, that's the people's <laughs> prices then that they get. Huh? <laughs> Three to five euros. Yeah. And so even that one euro, Timu thinks is too much. They want to keep get that down. That's why they're now, because they are having more volumes, they're now wanting to use ships instead of air freight. And so this is the whole difference. And so what I expect to happen is, is that in the next years, there's going to be a battle 
of e-commerce happening in the US, in, in Europe, mm -hmm. with these Chinese players. And of course, what is go also going to happen is that a lot of people are going to say, yeah, but this is a ecological or huge environmental problem. Uh, we've seen it with Alibaba in Belgium. There's been strikes there, or at least protests. And we'll see things about uh, the working conditions of yep. these factories. So all these things will pop up again. But Timu, just like Xi'an and all the others, will have to get this right. And it's going to take time. And they will, because that's what they did in China. Yeah. And at the end of the day, people will buy it. Eh? <laughs> yep. And that's the problem. And also for traditional retail, this is a, yep. a disaster. Eh? If you sell things for five or 10 euros that you can buy there for half a euro. But the biggest problem will be for the Actions and the Aldis mm -hmm. and the Lidl's and, uh, and the, the cheap budget uh, stores. Because they, they won't be able to compete anymore. No. But it's so addictive. I mean, because you reminded me, I, I started scrolling on the app. And, and I mean, it's just, oh my God. Yeah. Safe Christmas, I mean, please. I, it is addictive. <laughs> they have the highest retention rates when it comes to apps. So this is a combination of not just seeing a lot of products, but wanting to keep scrolling. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like you're yeah. on TikTok With looking at products. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. And now I have the same feeling when I was a little kid, when you had those television where you would have these really stupid products, but they would, you know, spend <laughs> yeah. 15 minutes yeah. in these info commercials. But, yeah, but this people is, bought a lot people on People bought a lot on that. That was, yeah? that was a success. But yeah. this is, you just keep scrolling and you think, oh my God, I mean, a stainless steel garlic mincer, <laughs> how, how can I not have that in my house, you know? And, and if you just, you know, spend a little bit of time looking at that, then you're going to have a lot of that related stuff coming just after. I mean, there, mm. the app is brilliant. I mean, this is, yeah, this is more addictive than TikTok. <laughs> it, it is. But I also think there's one thing that, that we're missing in app before it's too late. <laughs> there's one thing that we're missing in this story, and this is something that I've been fighting for for the, the last, I don't know, seven, eight years, is the practical creativity of Chinese to build products that people need. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, they're so practical. And they look fun. Uh, it's not that it's, they, it doesn't it's look like fun. junk. They look nice. Design is getting really Design good. Design is good, yeah. And, and they've learned over the time, but they also know exactly this is a problem we need to solve. And everybody, I mean, with 1.4 billion people, there's 1.4 billion ideas on how to create a new product. And, and now Timu is, is, is making that very, very clear. See, I'm opening the app, and the first thing the they give me is the, the wheel. wheel of fortune is already here. Fortune. I can win. Go. I can win a hundred euros. Just All a right, question, so. Pascal. I might miss that, but have, <laughs> yeah. are they only selling B two C, like only direct to consumer, or they're considering like selling to retailers as well? No, it's only B2C, as far as I know. The one thing that they're selling in China, B2C, which is extremely popular, which we don't see here, is everything with um, uh, fruit and vegetables. On PDD. So it's, oh, it's wow. actually fresh produce. This is the big thing in China, because farmers from very remote, and they were selling their products and Pingdodo just took care of the whole logistics. And so this changed the whole concept of farming in China. And we don't see that here yet. So I'm expecting that to come as well one day. It's one of the most difficult things to do in logistics because everything needs to keep fresh. Yeah, but course. if they can crack that nut, I mean, they did it in China, then I think uh, we're all gonna not going to the delays and the carrefours <laughs> and so on and just get our products uh, from Tinu in the future. So that will be the day. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Pascal, for sharing this. Before we all start shopping, I suggest we go to a different topic. Julie, you want to come back to the whole saga that we had at OpenAI and give us the reflection from a people point of view? Yeah, of course. I mean, 
my God, what was that? I think building on the topics we just discussed on attention, capitalism, convincing people, we sort of have a stellar case that I couldn't be not part of this radar episode, I think. So I count on you guys to just add your flavor, which you obviously will have. Yeah, recording December 18th. There are a lot of articles these days on uh, Netflix winning the streaming wars, etc. That's maybe a topic for next year. But I think the best series of this year by far was just the open AI saga. And it's not even a movie yet. It's not even a book yet. So uh, yeah, I can't wait to just see and read more of what's going to um, unfold over there. But I think three simple things for me that I wanted to come back to. And that it boils down to, to me, from an organizational perspective, because a lot of things are being said on the technology and what's going to win there. And I count on you guys to add that to this conversation. But I think for me, three things, what we clearly saw is that relationships and and having the best ones uh, are really the new rules of engagement. And probably they've always been that. But even for a technology company, they define the winning leaders. I think talent, secondly, defines the winning companies. Uh, We've clearly seen that whether it was OpenAI or Microsoft, but where the talent is, is what the winning company will be. And a third one, handling ambiguity, uh, I think will win the future. So those three things I'd love to just chat a little bit with you guys on. And let's chat on the first one. I think what we saw Sam Altman do, uh, and I think for the ones who just missed that, so Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI, he was it until half November, then a few days not, and then he was reinstated just a few days after that. But it was quite, it was quite the intense saga over the weekend. But what he did over the weekend was not proving that he was right. And we actually still don't know what happened and what was the actual reason of the decision of the board. But he immediately bet on the relationships. Made me think of a quote by um, Hank Volberda from the Rotterdam School of Management. Successful innovation is 75% social innovation and 25% technical innovation. I think I really want to ask you guys how you saw that networking, I I would say, endeavor over the weekend, how you saw that from, I mean, technology and innovation point of view. You guys are always watching the tech and how that is going to win. But this was really purely betting on, on people going with Sam. So how did you live through that? It was one of the first types of CEO succession or that was completely played out on Twitter. I mean, Ironically. I, at a certain moment, I actually thought it was a promotion stunt that Elon had figured out how to get more people attracted to Twitter. It was incredible. I mean, he got fired. He put it on Twitter. You saw Greg Brockman, his COO and best buddy, using Twitter as a platform to share his support and announcing his resignation. And then immediately everyone was on Twitter from the company pledging their support for Sam Altman. So I thought that was really interesting. So from a a technological network point of view, that was an interesting one as well. I think that the saddest thing that I've seen, but you've probably seen that as well, is where the CEO of Salesforce, Mark Benioff, immediately went on Twitter and said, oh, wow, anyone who wants to you know, leave, um, you know, just send your resume to my email address. Uh, that was almost pathetic. But I think you're right. I mean, it was an enormous way of showing support, reaching out. And I think this is something that was played out on networks. By the way, we've seen it this year before, where you see the power of networks is when Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, mm-hmm. where in a period of 
24 hours, the entire bank just went down because the power of networks. So, you know, I, I think you're right. And it's not just about support from a typical relationship point of view. I think this is also where uh, you can see the power of how fast information spreads on networks now these days and how powerful a message can be. Yeah, maybe two things is that one thing I think very ironic because indeed Twitter or X, uh, it's the weekend also that advertisers just went away from Twitter because it was a bad platform and because of the things Every that weekend. Musk said. Yeah. So that was quite ironic to see that everybody was on Twitter that weekend. So that's that was interesting to see. I think secondly, yes, on, on a public scale and on a narrative, they definitely own that. But I think today, 40% of people want to leave their jobs in the next three to six months, according to McKinsey. So if you convince a full company to not do that and follow you, you must be doing something. And I think to a topic that is dear to your heart, um, the techno-optimist manifesto from uh, Mark Andreessen, people do something for three reasons. It's love, money or force is what he says. And I think definitely that's also at play here. He just convinced, or I, in my opinion, he just showed those people as well, like if this company doesn't survive, the money will be gone as well. And so for, for many Many people at OpenAI, I think it will also have been a matter of just pure capitalism, making sure that their shares were worth still enough because the alternative was going to Microsoft. So I think how that played out in such a short time was pretty amazing. I think it has a lot to do also, which I think is interesting, on the personalizing of the company by one person becomes the company. And in China, the founders, you see very often being the reason that people join the company and people stay with the company, the, the founder is, is very, very important. And, and you saw that same thing happening in this case. You saw the opposite with Ant Financial, with Jack Ma, who was really depersonalization of Alibaba and Ant Financial. And when the company didn't go public because he spoke out that suddenly all these employees were really wondering what's going to happen. And that's capitalism again. What's going to happen with our money? We're not going to go IPO. I mean, we've been investing days and days and did from nine, to nine in the morning to nine in the evening, six days a week work for, for years to get this company go IPO. And now we're not going to get it. So I think this personalization of the company is a topic that I've always seen in China play out. And now we see this play out uh, with OpenAI. I think it's quite interesting because from a Chinese point of view, Western companies, the board has a lot more power than the CEO or the founder very often, specifically if they need money. Uh, in China, it's very often the opposite. But I now see this, and I think with Elon Musk, it's the same thing. I mean, certain of these people have so much personalized value in the company that everybody wants to stay and join and, and, and support them. Mm -hmm. Peter, last week you were at an event with uh, Satya Nadella. <laughs> Did he talk about this or share any things about this whole saga? that you didn't know yet? Well, I mean, what was interesting, of course, is that for Microsoft, this was something that they absolutely had to save because this is not just about the $11 billion they had already poured into OpenAI, but also because this technology and this access technology is so absolutely vital for them. I find it really interesting how quickly Satya Nadella acted. So immediately he reached out and clearly showed his support for Sam. He basically offered him, you know, a job, an opportunity, a chance to build basically OpenAI again within Microsoft. And, and it looked like, you know, for a brief moment that that would actually happen and that many of the people that would follow Sam Altman would just be part of Microsoft. 
I think that would have worked actually, because Microsoft now is an environment where you can do that. I mean, if you see the amount of acquisitions they've done, where a lot of people, you know, understand what they can do within the powerhouse of Microsoft, I think that would have worked. But it also shows how, you know, a company like Microsoft is able to put its influence down because in the end, what happens is they have a new board where Microsoft clearly has a lot more to say. And actually, as a result of this, I think Microsoft has now a lot more power over OpenAI and what actually happens. But I'm a big fan of Satya Nadella, as you know. I think you know, he's been instrumental in the enormous powerhouse that Microsoft has become. It's a great example of a phoenix. And you could also see that from a personal relationship point of view, Satya and Sam Altman, they really understand each other. They exactly. really you know, see a common future and they understand how important it is for that alignment to really work out. Yeah, and I guess that's the first place where the board lost his case, you know, uh, Microsoft not knowing anything about it. Uh, of course, you go for the guy that you know and that you work with and that you're on this mission with. So not looping them in or him in at front is, I mean, by default, they, they were starting that war, I would say, from the weekend from behind. You know, you never get up that hill again. But I think what Nadella did indeed, he he kept his options open and he, he definitely understood like the second thing for me is like, it's talent that wins, uh, the company that has the talent and then has, of course, the technologies, of course, that they've already built uh, the quote, no people, no open AI. Actually, Satya Nadella had all the options open or OpenAI would sort of survive and that would be okay, or they would have been at Microsoft. So he definitely bet on both scenarios and that was all fine. And he could sort of show that both scenarios were okay for him and that was not either this or that. Uh, so from a third perspective, I think both Sam as Satya Nadella showed that we can live in circumstances with different scenarios, with ambiguity, with having different jobs, different roles. And I think we need more of that. I, I think we need people and companies that can sort of prepare for different scenarios and then switch gears fast enough like they did. I heard a podcast in the last month with Sam where he also really celebrates the team at OpenAI just because of that. Like the fact that he's literally saying the ability to handle in those uncertain times, stressful situations and just remain active at the company. He said, I mean, I'm not needed there because the team can handle it. Uh, and of course, I want to be there and I will do the job, etc. But I think that is a skill that I would wish a lot of companies in 2024 will bet on as well. And that they will, there's not a lot of talk about that uh, in the media. There's a lot of uh, the technology and, and the saga and the drama. But I think what we can really learn from that, yeah, is that that skill is important that we should prepare our teams to also live with those circumstances. You know, I was at Microsoft a few weeks ago and I saw a demo of all the things that they're planning to launch next year, both the, the co-pilot in their office products, but also their customer service B2B offerings. And it's, it's super advanced stuff that is basically ready. Uh, the, the only reason why the adoption might be a little bit slower is because companies aren't ready with their data yet uh, to, <laughs> to implement it. But basically, the quality of customer service will speed up. It will be more personalized. It will be faster. It will be more automated. And when I was driving home, I was thinking about this, this idea that, yeah, the skills, the habits the behavior of customer service agents will will change fundamentally. And I'm a, I'm a big believer that organizations should start working on creating high-value customer service agents. Basically, people who are trained in the more emotional part of the job, people who have unlimited time per call, people can choose any channel 
just to make sure that, you know, we, we, we're ready to deal with more emotional, more deep problems that people have when they really want to see a human face-to-face -face even. Because if you see the software that they're launching and the advances in AI, I'm convinced that a few years from now, five years from now, probably the large majority, maybe even 99% of all customer service engagements will be automated. If you look at the evolution, I mean, before we had the internet, 100% of all customer service was done by humans. Today, depending from industry to industry, sometimes it's 50% humans, 50% machines. If you look to the world of banking, it's probably 80% uh, machine, 20% human or even more. We're evolving towards the 1%. And the day that you get to that point, the only humans you need are high-value customer service agents, people who really understand the emotional part and know how to deal with that. Um, and I was posting about that on my channels online, and a lot of people resist that evolution. A lot of people think, no, 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 no. Forever, we, we, we'll, we'll go for the human channel. And I'm not sure about that. I mean, if you look to the evolution of, of banking, um, I'm sure you all remember this in 2007, 2008, when banks went all in on mobile banking, online banking. The world was angry. Yeah? They were like, oh, we have to do everything ourselves. And they're, they're, this is a cost decrease. And, and we as customers have to do everything. But they still went forward with that. Imagine today, 2023, that the banks would say to their customers, dear customers, we're a little bit slow, eh? but we heard your feedback from 2007. You want to have the human thing back. You know what? We're going to stop with the online banking. We're going to stop with mobile banking. And we have good news. The humans are back. You can go to the branches between nine in the morning and five in the afternoon. And we're happy that we can give you everything you asked for. I mean, the protests would be insane. Eh? We don't want to go back. So the moment it works, the moment that it facilitates our lives, that it becomes easier, we go for the automated part. The problem is that we all had so many bad experiences with bots the last few years. They were terrible, of course. Eh? The bots that had like a tree structure, you know, it was more frustration than anything else. But if you see the demos that I've seen at Microsoft, and if you see what AI can do and what it will be able to do, I'm convinced that that automation part will come sooner than later, and that as a preparation, you should make sure as a company that you start to train a small percentage of your agents to be those high-value customer service agents. That's my feeling on this. I think the element there is also going to be cost, mm -hmm. to be very honest. I get very excited about some of the demos, so, but when I talk to business leaders, and especially IT leaders, they're very worried about the cost of this because when you think about Copilot, for example, mm -hmm. Copilot is going to be a significant increase in the cost uh, per employee of IT. And that's going to be a very interesting equation. I mean, how much do you want to spend? Because it's not just the co-pilot license. It's about understanding how to build your own mechanisms to combine your own IP with some of these large language models. It's about building up uh, expertise in AI. It's about understanding how to maintain. And, and there is going to be a cost involved, you know, a, a set of costs 
a delivery cost, and then an operational cost. Mm -hmm. And that's going to have to balance itself out. So I think the cost element of AI is going to be one of the big topics of next year. And figuring out where you can make, it's not just about, you know, delivering better customer service. You know, I think AI is such a broad, you know, setup inside organizations, but that whole cost benefit thing, this year was the year of wow. Next year is going to be about, okay, you know, how do we balance it out and where do we want to really use this and how much is this going to cost? How much is going to reduce our operational costs? I think the cost benefit of AI, that's going to be the big topic of next year. Yeah, because exactly your point, Stephen, I think it really has to be good. Uh, it really has to be It's efficient good, yeah. and there's no margin for error there. Uh, I already hate sometimes that I have to tap into full sentences into ChatGPT because I like just putting in three words and having an answer. Mm -hmm. And so, <laughs> and that sort of makes you realize how, how yeah, how lazy you are in that, in that regard. So yeah, curious how fast that will go. Yeah, and how fast you want to change and then you want to say it to it. So I'm really curious to see how Gemini will help us with our laziness, if it's understanding us or not. So it's going to be interesting. Yeah, like we have the war of platforms, as Pascal pointed out. I think the war between all those systems and which ones will be good for the three words kind of people and the ones that are good <laughs> for the full sentence kind of people. And then I'm curious how that cost-benefit will maybe sort of create a sort of new market too. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Peter, last topic is yours with the beautiful title, Optimism. Tell us more. Well, I mean, I wrote an op-ed piece in the financial uh, newspaper in Belgium uh, the other day around optimism. And I thought, Ah, that's an easy one, right? I mean, we're getting into Christmas. It's that you know, <laughs> end of the year spirit. and it's, the, it's your Christmas message for this episode. Well, you know, th <laughs> this might not be... I have gotten so much reactions on that one, um, both from people who said, yeah, finally, some optimism, and people who said, oh, my God, it's terrible. You know, it's we're living in a time that is more challenged than ever before. And this idea of an unbridled optimism for the future is actually a negative thing. And it's probably the number one op-ed piece that I've gotten so much reaction this year. So I probably want to go deeper into this, certainly into next year. It might actually become a book uh, because I, I think it's such a fascinating subject at the moment. And what I wrote about is the EAC movement, uh, the Effective Accelerationists. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with what is happening, but it's huge. I mean, there was a recent party in San Francisco for the EACers, so the Effective Accelerationists, and Kevin Roos, my, my favorite New York Times tech uh, San Francisco guy, was there, and he reported on this in the New York Times so when you entered, it had a huge banner which said "Accelerate or Die," which is a very interesting way <laughs> to you know position it. Grimes, Elon Musk's girlfriend, was the DJ at the party, so this was the place to be, and it was really a celebration of the EAC movement. So effective accelerationism and the people who do it are the effective accelerationists are people who fundamentally believe that what is happening now is an opportunity to build a better world. And instead of slowing it down, we should accelerate. And the opposite of the EX is what they call the D-cells. So if you're called a D-cell, you're not accelerating, you're actually you know, slowing down. So You're not welcome at the park. You're not welcome no. there. So um, a D-cell is the slang word that you don't want to be tagged on. 
But when you look at EAC, there's a link there to effective altruism. And that became really popular this year when we had the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. You remember the, the fallen king from crypto? Sam Bankman was arrested in the Bahamas and then the whole FTX trial and Sam Bankman-Fried. I mean, he was eventually found guilty. It was probably the trial of the year. But throughout the whole narrative of the trial, they always said, oh, well, Sam Bankman, he's an effective altruist. And an effective altruist, the EA movement, which was very popular a few years ago, was a lot of people, including Sam Bankman-Fried, who said, you know what? The government can't do anything, you know? I mean, governments today are just completely horrible. You know what? We, we techno entrepreneurs, we will make a shitload of money, and then we will use our money to build a better world which is basically what you know, the Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are doing by saying, well, you know, NASA just sucks you know, big time. You know what? We'll take our billions. We'll build our own space future, right? which is a movement that was very popular a while ago. So the effect of altruism was almost a philosophical, philanthropic type of movement. It was about giving back. But very strangely, that whole effect of altruism movement has now actually converged into a movement where some of these people are actually getting a little worried. They're getting worried about AI. A lot of them have become doomers. And a lot of the effect of altruists are now almost the D-cells of this world. So as a counter movement to that, we now have the effect of accelerationists. Now, this is almost semi-religious battles. So this is, this is fascinating. Now, we've had religious battles for a long time. I mean, Tari versus Commodore, um, you know, I, God, Apple versus Windows, uh, Yahoo versus Alta Vista. We've always had that, right? Mm -hmm. So in the tech world, we've always created it. But this is, I think, really fundamental. If you go to that idea of effective um, accelerationism, there is a British philosopher called Nick Land, which is at the very heart of that. Um, he's now very, very untouchable because he said some really bad stuff and he's become like an ultra-right conservative weirdo. But he started talking about this you know, a while ago. And he, he talked about this techno-capital singularity where the world of capitalism and technology could usher us into a completely different world. And you now have some really, really prominent effective accelerationists. So the number one is now Mark Andreessen. Of course. Mark, of course. Founder of Netscape and you know, the person behind Andreessen Horvath. Even in his Twitter profile, no, his X profile, he says EAC. So he says, I am an effective accelerationist. Can I just say something in between about this Twitter and X thing? Don't you guys believe that that's the, the biggest rebranding failure <laughs> in history? I mean, everyone still says Twitter. If I go to the side of my computer, I still type in Twitter. I mean, you have to force yourself to say X. Don't you have the same thing? Yeah. I, yeah it's a disaster. In every news report, they say yeah. uh, X, previously X known previously as Twitter. Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, no. yeah. Sorry that I interrupted no, 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 you. No, you're I, absolutely right. I just noticed but, that, yeah. yeah. You can also see that for those people, Twitter, X is still a pretty big platform. Huh? So is, Mark yeah. Andreessen outed himself as an EAC, but you know, people like Jerry Tan, who's the president of Y Combinator, said, yep, yep, EAC, that's the future. So you have a lot of high-profile tech entrepreneurs who believe that this is the moment to actually double down, 
to actually accelerate and and especially AI. That is really you know even when apparently Kevin said at the effective accelerationist party, people said, "Oh my God, effective altruism is so 2019." You know, so that is like <laughs> way way out. Huh? Um, you now have even splinter groups of EAC. You have BAC, uh, which is the biological accelerationism, who believe that that is going to be the future, where we're going to completely alter our genes and, and build better humans. You have DAC, which is decentralized accelerationism, coined by none other than Vitalik Buterin, uh, the, the guy who founded Ethereum. If you remember, we had a while ago that the DAOs, you remember that? The decentralized autonomous organizations? Well, yeah. Vitalik says, see, I was right, a D the act that's the future so yeah there's there's a whole lot of act going on and i think that's the true sign of any religion the moment that you have religious splinter factions that start to fundamentally hate each other then you're on to something so I, there is something here but going back it's really about an optimism. Effective accelerationists have almost like a bias for optimism and and they really believe that the future is going to be better even if we are then managed by evil AI overlords. I mean, but but then again, you have people who like the rebels in Star Wars, but you have people who actually like Darth Vader. So that's a whole different you know, conversation. <laughs> but I was listening to the interview that Elon Musk gave at the DealBook Summit. Is that the go and fuck yourself interview? Yeah, yeah, the go F yourself, uh, uh, indeed. <laughs> um, and I, I, I mean, that little, that little snippet went, around the world, right? So, and people said, ah, he's, he's nuts. He's, he's, he's on ketamine. He's, he's, he's crazy. He's lost it. I mean, I actually watched the entire one hour interview. And if you haven't, I, I would seriously suggest that you do. It is brilliant. It is painful at times because you can clearly see he's wrestling with so much complexity. I think he was dead tired. The go F yourself uh, statement came in the very early of the interview when he was clearly uncomfortable being on stage, uncomfortable with the interviewer, uncomfortable with the audience. But then he calms down. And in the end, he says, you know what? I am a pathological optimist. And I love that term pathological optimism. And pathological means that you can't help it. It's almost like a disease, but optimism as a disease. And, and I kind of to really like that term, a pathological, it's an optimist no matter what. You can't help yourself but be an optimist. And you know, I've read the entire biography of Musk, as you know, it's 700 pages, but it, you can just boil it down to those two words. He's a pathological optimist. And this is something that I'd love to get your opinion on because I am an optimist as well. You guys know that. I mean, I can get excited about new things. Mm -hmm. And I now realize that there are plenty of people out there who don't share my optimism. There are plenty of people who say, you know, how can you be so blind? How can you be so naive? You know? We have a world which is getting worse, not better. We have a world where we have tech players that are you know, getting more and more dominant. We have a world where governments can't do anything anymore. We are, and this is only going to get worse if we have this blind faith in optimism. So yeah, it's a, a subject. I think I'm gonna spend more time on it in the next year. I'd also like to get your opinion because, I mean, Stephen, um, yep. you, you know what my answer will be. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, but I, I have always known you to be very optimistic. 
you are almost like the hallmark of, of speakers, right? <laughs> I mean, you never talk about something negative. You always look for the positive side in things. Mm -hmm. But there must have been moments where you've gotten pushback or feedback. There must have been moments where even you as a person thought, you know what? Is this always a good thing? And I, I know that you're trying to relate that positive image. So I'd, I'd love to get your opinion on that. Pascal, <laughs> I mean, you're always so optimistic about, about China. I mean, you're yeah. always optimistic about China. But I'm also curious in the sense that are there moments where you actually see some of the darker sides of what is happening? And is that something where you say, I don't want to be there? Or is it something where you spend some time on? Julie, I mean, I'd love to get your opinion as well. You spend a lot of time on the organizational side of things, on that human cultural side of things. You've spent a lot of time with companies, you know, over the years at Nextworks, helping them become more positive about the future. But then, of course, sometimes we get them all excited, but then reality is quite different. And it's really a matter of balancing that optimism. So, yeah, I am probably a pathological optimist myself, but I would <laughs> love to get your input on this subject. All right. Who do you want to hear first, Peter? Uh, whoever is the most optimistic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> it'll be me. We're going to make a ranking. I want to be on number one. <laughs> Go ahead, Stephen. You earned this. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Go ahead. No, I'm, 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 I'm super, super optimistic. Yeah? And, and it's sometimes very hard to convince people. And then you throw in things like the book of factfulness, uh, where you objectively see that the world has been evolving in a positive way. The, the question I ask people now when we have a debate like this, I say, imagine that you have this, this unique opportunity that you can decide where you will be reborn and when do you want to be reborn? And then if, if people start to think, most of them answer, I would like to be born now and probably in the same country that we're now. So when I speak with people in the US, they say, I want to be born in the US again. And probably... Now, if you talk with people in Belgium or Holland, they say, well, yeah, yeah. In all honesty, I wouldn't choose a different place. So if people think deep, they say, well, it's not so bad after all the kind of life that we have. So uh, that, that's what I try to do in those conversations. You know, the, the one thing that I'm cynical about, Peter, is that I've been talking so much about customer experience and customer centricity. And every single day this morning before we started, I already got an email where people share the most terrible stories about customer experience with me. They say, we saw your talk, we fully believe what you say, but this is my reality. It sucks. Even in the examples that you told me that we're doing a good job, this is what this company did to me. And then you see that it, it is so damn difficult for them to do it that probably I can do whatever I want, go a zillion times to the same company, but it, for a lot of organizations, it will never happen. And that's the one thing that, that I've learned, you know, it's some organizations just don't have it in them to deliver the kind of things that, that I and we talk about. And that is sometimes very frustrating because in my opinion, it is so easy to do things differently. And I see the opportunities being spread out on the table, but very often they always figure out a way how to screw it up or how to do it in a different way. And that, yeah, that disappoints me. On the other hand, I will never be out of a job. Huh? That's my optimistic look <laughs> on things from my perspective. 
but I would assume that you can do more than what I see. And that's the the one thing that I'm disappointed in, that I'm not so optimistic about. And and, and maybe just to quickly add on to that, and then I'm interested in Julian and Pascal, who have lost the optimism race, because Steven yeah, got there first. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I mean, he was the <laughs> first, he was the first. I mean, I mean, Steven, to your point, I think there's a lot of that which relates to leadership. And, and I think- I agree. Uh, the number one thing that I've seen, and I've been, you know, touring companies for the last 30 years now is that if you have a leader who is, I think, authentically optimistic, not just, mm -hmm. you know, giving lip service, I think that leadership capability can really radiate throughout the entire organization. So that authenticity yep. in optimism is, I think, an enormously important leadership quality. So, Julie yep. and Pascal, who goes next? Me, 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 me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even got it to Dutch. Well, you're the last one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're the pessimist in the group, Pascal. I'm not the pessimist. I, this group. <laughs> Julie was first. Ranking. Julie, you go. Yeah. Go, go. Never go. underestimate I'll, I'll the third one. Uh, we'll see about that. Yeah, no. Uh, I'm a people person. I'm a big believer in people, uh, but I do share what uh, Stephen said. There's a lot of opportunity there. And actually, I think it boils down to education. Um, there's no such thing that we are taught in education that is about empathy or social skills. It's all about math and history. And yeah, our context is our context at home or education or our friends, etc. And it really depends on who do you meet, who do you become. If you look at people like Sam, uh, they are like, this is the mission, we're optimistic, and they go for it. And it's thanks to people like that, that we indeed follow that. But I think the opportunity is not about being right, and Sam is wrong, and he's a crazy guy, or that guy is wrong, or he's a crazy guy. I think it's about just accepting that there's no one truth, but if we all agree that we want to have a better future, we can just try and go for that instead of nagging around to each other who's right. Uh, and I think attention to ambiguity, attention to not this is right or it's and, attention to resilience will make people a little bit nicer to each other, that they're like okay with a downfall or, I mean, of course, positivity doesn't mean that things are easy. You know, life is hard. I think, uh, Stephen, you, you have a brilliant job. I, all of you, you inspire tons of people, but that doesn't make it easy. It's because you choose to have that and go for that. And I think that are the things that we don't often really say to each other. So I'm very optimistic if we do that, if we invest in people and if we invest in sort of a little bit more realism about what, what progress really is. Um, I, I like, by the way, how Adam Grant says that it's not about performance, it's about progress. If we all just go for progress, I'm pretty optimistic it will be okay. Wonderful. So Pascal, um, you know, you, you I, the, the uh, yeah. no, 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 I mean, I mean, I, I, uh, <laughs> I think it's a good thing for me to be the least optimistic when it comes <laughs> 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 because if I were the most optimistic, I mean, everybody, and this is typically when it talks about China, being optimistic about China is, is kind of like the most <laughs> difficult thing you can do We lost. simply because people will say you're naive, you're not critical. And this is very interesting. And Peter, I, I'd like your take on this as well, because these days, what, what I encounter every single day is that when you're optimistic, people say you're not critical. Mm -hmm. Well, I think criticism and being critical are two very different things. Mm -hmm. If you're not being critical about China or Xi Jinping or the regime or, or the wrong system, like some people call it, then you are not critical. And I think that's wrong. It's not because you're not criticizing something constantly or very often that you're considered being not critical. And I think the optimism is often linked to criticizing or being critical. And I think it's wrong. 
I, I don't know what you think about that, but for me, it's it's I it's a mistake agree. we often make. I fully yeah. agree yeah, with yeah, that, yeah, Pascal. I fully, agree. fully agree on yeah, that. Yeah. And and I can experience this. Uh, I experience this every single day. Yeah. Uh, every single day, people are saying, "Yeah, but you can't trust China. You can't trust uh, Beijing. It, it's it's not true what you say. And, and why are you so blind for this and that and that?" And then I try to explain context, but people don't care as much about the context because their mind is often made up that China or something coming from China like Timu is is not going to be trusted. And so this is a big issue. But but I want to go back to why I'm an optimist. When it comes to China, because I think that's also interesting. When I visited China in the 90s for the very first time, I mean, I thought about China like most people thought about China. And it was like, I thought a country that a little bit retarded and people weren't doing much and so on. But the one thing that I noticed back in the 90s was the optimism and the positive mindset of the Chinese to want to improve their lives. And this is something, not just China. The whole Asia is like that. And I think specifically when it's about technology, when it's about innovation, when it's about companies, this is what is going to be the weakest point in Europe and in the US if we're not going to get more optimistic on the future. Because the Chinese, the Koreans, the Singaporeans, the Malaysians, I mean the Malay, they all want to be moving forward. And they're very optimistic. In nature, I mean, some of these countries like Thailand, they're all laughing and they all want a better future. I mean, this is really mm -hmm. an Asian thing. True. It's to believe that the future will be better than the past. And so combine that with the Chinese practicality and pragmatism, where it's not about just complaining and trying to find problem or create problems, let's say like that, which we often do, but to figure out solutions for problems, combine that with optimism, and then you get a society that is moving at really accelerated speed. And I think the effective accelerationists, I mean, this is something that I've seen always in China. This is how it created, in my view, the, the Alibabas and the Tencents and the Baidus and the Timus now. It, it's about, let's go faster, faster. So they could join uh, very easily in San Francisco, or we could have a tour in China or bring the, the US guys to China to see what's happened. For me, it sounds a little bit like agility was a word, and then there were people trying to do workshops in China about agility, and everybody in China was like saying, yeah, but mm -hmm. we've always had agility. What are you teaching us? And I think this could be the same thing when it's it's about acceleration. Fantastic. So I'm an optimist. I'm an optimist simply because I have 1.4 billion Chinese or at least <laughs> 1.3 billion Chinese behind me that are also optimists. <laughs> that is a beautiful Christmas message to end our podcast, I would say. Thank you, Pascal. And I also like the idea, Stephen, of doing an accelerationist tour. You yeah, know, where can nice. we actually... Yes. Good idea. Where can we go Find, to? you know, those ideas to really put Call accelerationism <laughs> into practice. I mean... And well, we only I mean, want positive people on the tour. <laughs> yeah, no! <laughs> positive and critical, you know? that's Because to that point, Peter, you mentioned that. Sorry that I, that I add that, because... Uh, you mentioned that, like, yeah, we're going to tour, and then what? Then the hard part starts. But that's exactly the thing that Pascal said. You have positive people on those tours who see the opportunities, but also the ones that say, okay, let's be critical on what it really takes. Uh, but those are the ones doing it. So I think if you do have those two things, and if you just look at the world, it's going to be a beautiful year next year. Beautiful. Beautiful Christmas wishes, my friends. Julie, Pascal, Peter, thank you very much for joining me in this Pleasure. episode of Radar. Thanks, everyone, for listening. 
do us a favor and tell one friend at your Christmas dinner or New Year's Eve party about Radar. We get a lot of positive feedback from all of you. So thank you very much for sharing that with us. Thank you for helping us broadening our audience. We wish you a fantastic start of 2024. And we'll see you and hear you again in January. Take care. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website, nextworks.com, to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.